Well, if you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, turn it to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Um, last Sunday we began looking specifically at the first phrase of this letter. What was from the beginning. And if you were here, I hope you walked out the door more convinced than ever that Jesus is God. That Jesus is, has always been God. He always will be God. Even before the beginning, you know, I got to thinking, if Jesus was not eternally existing in the past, what confidence do we have that He will eternally be existing in the future? If Jesus was not eternally existing in the past, what confidence do we have that Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is true? But I hope yet last week that Maybe even if you had questions about how do I know from the Bible that Jesus is eternal, I hope those questions were answered and then some last Sunday. What was from the beginning shows us that Jesus was there when He brought the beginning into being. Jesus is the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth. And then He interacted with His people in the Old Testament as the angel the the messenger of Yahweh, the guider and protector of His people. He shows His people the way of salvation. He is the agent of judgment for disobedience. He's the one who shows that there is a better future. There is a sure hope. And He brings renewal to those who are oppressed by the curse of sin. And He was doing all of that before He was ever called Jesus. Or in Hebrew, Yeshua. So last week we saw the eternality of the Word of Life. Today we are going to look at the historicity of the Word of Life. The Word of Life in history. And we won't, well, we will cover all of this today, I think. So, 1 John 1, 1 through 1-4, let's read it and then we'll pray. What was from the beginning? What we have heard. What we have seen with our eyes. What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning thankful that You have brought us here. Thankful on this Mother's Day for the gift of mothers. And we, we celebrate our, our own mothers today and we understand, Father, that this is not a happy day for everybody and so our sympathies are also with those. We live in a world of sin and death, and that wreaks havoc on the mother-child relationship. And we, we thank You that in Christ, all of the curse is gone. All of the effects of sin will be remedied. We thank You, Father, that You've sent Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for the opportunity yesterday to proclaim Him in our community. We thank You for the captive audiences as children had their faces painted. We thank You for the chances we got just to tell people about us and tell people about You. 
And now we come, Lord, to Your Word. And having settled in our minds, I pray, the fact that Your Son, Jesus Christ, wasn't just conjured up into existence in a, a mother's womb, but always was and is and will be. Having settled that, Father, I pray we will now be edified by thinking through the fact that He came as a man and what that means for us. So I pray You'll speak Your words through my voice this morning, that I will communicate Your word faithfully, and that Your people will be edified and You'll be glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, trying to put this together last night when I was uh, a little burnt out, so to speak. I'm hoping that I'll make sense this morning. Um, lots of things were going through my mind last night. One of them was the fact that we just live in a day and in an age where, for many people, truth is relative. That is to say, a great number of people that we rub shoulders with, people in our own communities, maybe even people in our own families. We know people in our county. They may not admit to it, but they live as though there is no true right and wrong. That as though there is no real truth and no real error and no real consequences. Yesterday as we were packing up the trucks and, and moving out, leaving, there was a bumper sticker on the truck in front of us and it said, logic is greater, had the greater than sign, logic is greater than truth. Now if you think about that, that is an illogical statement on its face. Because all actual logic is grounded in actual truth. 2 plus 2 equals 4 is grounded in the order by which God created the heavens and the earth. If 2 plus 2 is 4, then all bets are off. It does not equal 4, then all bets are off. There is no logic apart from truth. And yet we live in a day and age in which God's purposes and designs for marriage have been corrupted by sinful desires. Gender confusion permeates our culture and is trickling down into our most basic social structures. I won't get specific. I saw another evidence of that on a little news blurb on Facebook yesterday. Uh, Google uh, what's latest with Bruce Jenner and you'll see that. Race relations are spoken of without... And it, they're spoken of without true reference to the fact that there's really only one race. And that's the human race. We're all sons of Adam, no matter what one's shade of melanin is. And we must all be redeemed through one Savior, Jesus, who breaks down every wall of division. Truth has become whatever you desire it to be in our world. And as those who have been called as Christians, those who have been called as saints and ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ... We need to be aware of what we're facing out there. Truth does not matter to the majority. Their minds have been de de depraved. They're, they're depraved and they're corrupted by sin. And, and so were ours before Christ saved us. It's only by the grace of God that truth is not relative to us. But truth has become whatever one desires it to be. Many people's definition of God is one spoken of in the Bible, but ultimately He's just there to make you happiest. You can find that on your television set almost any time. 
as if God exists for us. That is illogical. God does not exist for us. God has created us for His glory. False teaching is prevalent today. This week, yet again, a popular megachurch pastor made news because of a sermon he recently preached in which he said Christians need to, quote, unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. That is illogical. Why is that illogical? Because we lose the significance of the New Testament without the promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament. We lose what He was saving us from if we lose how we were cursed to begin with. We cannot unhitch our faith from any part of God's work. How do we know right and wrong in God's created order apart from Genesis? Beloved, 2 Timothy 3, verse 5 tells us to avoid men such as these. Jude 4 says they need to be marked out for their condemnation. And so, I'm going to name a name this morning. Avoid Andy Stanley. Okay? Avoid Andy Stanley. Avoid his ministry. He has a very successful ministry by the world's standards, but he's outside of the bounds of truth. And this is not the first time. So, as one of your shepherds, I'm supposed to protect you. Stay away. And I say all of that to remind you that when John wrote 1 John, there were false teachers then too. He was dealing with a lot of the same things we're dealing with. A lot of the same, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I said that last week. Modern heresy is old heresy in new clothes. In fact, the latter part of his life, there was a heresy that would become known as Gnosticism. And it was gaining headway in the church. Late 1st century, early 2nd century. And I mentioned it last week or the week before. There was this teaching that spirit was good, but, but all flesh, all matter was evil. So there were false brethren that were creeping in unawares and spreading this poison that Jesus did not really come in the flesh. Jesus did not really come as a real man. But instead He was some mystical apparition. A, a spiritually transcendent figure who may have appeared like a man, but was not really a man. And there were people purporting this heresy, and they were claiming to have special spiritual insight, special spiritual knowledge that comes from, from God. They had it and other people didn't. That's why they were known as Gnostics, because that word Gnostic in the Greek means knowledge. Okay, But the only knowledge you and I need, beloved, is the knowledge of God. That saving knowledge which comes when He takes a sinner who is dead in her, his or her sins, and that's all of us before we're saved, and He makes us alive. He gives us new life. He gives us eyes to see Him. He gives us ears to hear. He gives us hearts to understand. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you have been born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's what God does. So that even the youngest in the faith can know Him. Even the youngest in the faith can have the knowledge that He saves. And let us remember, by the way, that if anyone knew Jesus, it was the Apostle John. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is one of the ones who... you know, he, he was the last living apostle. And he's one of those fishermen who Jesus said, come follow me. And he got right up out of his boat, dropped his nets, and with his brother, and there's Peter and Andrew over there, they're following him too. 
John walked with Christ. John suffered for Christ. And he endured decades of hard ministry for Christ. And now he was imparting the truth of God to those who by and large had not been even born when Jesus was walking the earth. If anyone knew the word of life, it was John. It also should not go unnoticed that John lists four ways in the passage we just read that he actually experienced the word of life. And I want to talk about those for a few minutes. And, you know, this is not like visions that people claim to have today. This is not like the the still small voice that Elijah heard in 1 Kings 19. That, you know, a lot of people, you know, sometimes we we think that today, and and I, I would just, I'm more inclined to believe that's us being guided by our own intuitions, informed by the the knowledge of the Bible, informed by our knowledge of God. But but I, I digress. John lists four ways here where he personally experienced Jesus. And the first is this. He heard Him. John heard Him with his physical ears. What was from the beginning is now what we have heard. So the eternal God was heard. And of course, John did hear Jesus. He heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. He heard Jesus preach numerous sermons. He heard Jesus speak in parables. He heard Jesus give private instruction and private rebuke to the disciples. And and I gave you a little grammar lesson this week, and and I'm going to do it again this week. Have heard is in the perfect tense. And what that means, the, the significance of that, is that it is a past completed action. It's done, but it has present, continuous, ongoing effect. Jesus had spoken 60 some odd years earlier, and it still had as much effect on John in 95 AD, or whenever it was he wrote, as it did in 30 AD. Jesus spoke in the past, beloved. We have His complete revelation recorded for us in the Bible. He is what we have heard. A past completed action. But what He has said has present, continuous, ongoing effect on you and on me this morning. Even almost 2,000 years later. John was not referring to, to one single thing Jesus said here, by the way, but the totality of what Jesus spoke during His earthly ministry. What Jesus said, what John heard, made such an impact upon him that he still spoke about it and he still wrote about it in vivid detail many decades later. Because remember, the Gospel of John is written around the same time as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are. Many decades after Jesus had ascended back into earth. And by the way, this past Thursday was 40 days after Resurrection Day. So that, that, was, that marks the ascension of Jesus. Ascension Day. He didn't just see. He didn't just hear, I mean. He also saw. What we have seen with our eyes, John wrote. And again, it's have seen. The perfect tense again. We don't see Jesus with our human eyes, do we? We don't hear Him with our human ears. But John did, and it had and continues to have present ongoing effect. And note that while, John, while the early Gnostic heretics may have 
been claiming that Jesus was some spirit looking like a man. John adds the phrase, with our eyes, to emphasize that this was a real physical human experience. This was not an apparition. This was not a vision. He saw Jesus as you see me right now and as I see you. Jesus was not a mirage, but a real man that John saw every day for over three years with his own eyes. And then third, and this goes along with the second, but it is a little bit different, what we have looked at. So it sounds the same as what we have seen, but there's an intensity in the words here, an increasing intensity. John is reinforcing the fact that he really saw Jesus. But again, the good stuff is in the details. And the details in this case are, it's the word looked. Because it, it's translated from a Greek verb, theaomai, I can't even say it, which means to look at closely, to perceive. That means to, to see with understanding, to closely examine. John did not take a glance at Jesus the way we glance at our phones when a notification goes off, okay? John did not glance at Jesus the way we might glance at the TV and walk away. Or might glance at that person wearing something, I can't believe they wore that, you know, and and then look away. Okay? John examined Jesus. John searched Him out closely for over three years. And that's an important detail to remember because John was jailed for preaching Jesus and eventually exiled to a Roman prison island colony called Patmos. But as long as John lived, he would have every possible opportunity to recant what he had said about Jesus, to repudiate the claims he had made about Jesus. And he never did. He searched Jesus closely and followed Him all of His life. And finally, what we touch with our hands. You know, it's, it's, it's proven that the more senses we engage in learning, the better off we are in trying to permanently remember that which we are learning. John is emphasizing this here. He touched the Word of life Jesus with His hands. That word touched. Jesus used that word. After His resurrection in, in Luke 29, or not 29, there is only Luke 29, Luke 24, 39, He said, Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Now think about how often you touch those you live among, even by accident. We pat each other on the back. I've shaken hands and hugged this morning. Think about your family, how often you bump into one another in the kitchen, just bumping bodies. Not to mention all the other regular familial hugs and whatnot that you might experience. Think of how many times walking with Jesus for over three years, John would have touched Him. You know, It was either last week or probably the week before that I mentioned the upper room scene where Jesus predicts His betrayal and John buries His head in Jesus' chest. He touched the Word of life. He heard Jesus 
He saw Jesus. He examined Jesus closely. He touched Jesus. John was thoroughly familiar with the one he calls here the Word of Life. The person and the work of Jesus Christ presented in the Gospels. And as John writes in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Or, or verse 2 here, the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Let me hearken back to false teaching for a second. We live in a world, beloved, where the world keeps wanting to figure out ways to deny the historicity of Jesus. You turn on during resurrection time, or maybe during Christmas time, you turn on one of those cable stations like A&E or the Discovery Channel or History Channel or, or... or, or National Geographic or something like that. And you'll no doubt see talking heads with doctorates speculating about the validity of the Scriptures and casting doubt upon the reliability of the biblical account of Jesus Christ. You can watch them and you can believe them or you can take the word of a man who actually lived with Jesus, suffered for Jesus, and never ever recanted. And remember, John wasn't the only one. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul experienced Jesus in a little bit different way, but he lost his head. And every other, of the, every other one of the twelve besides John was martyred for the faith. His own brother James, his martyrdom is captured for us in Acts chapter 12. And these men did not endure what they endured and die the way they died for a myth. They held firm to the testimony that the generation after them would come to believe and continue to preach. They knew the Word of Life was manifested. It was revealed. It was made visible. It was made known. And they passed it on. They passed it on. I remember when I was a kid, way back in the olden days, the 80s, And on TV, during cartoons, back when they still did Saturday morning cartoons, there was a commercial for milk, of all things. And it said, milk does a body good, pass it on. And I remember that for some reason 30 some odd years later. But pass it on, that there's something good for you which you are to be partaking. Now, these days you get conflicting reports about milk every day. That's just like every other thing we, we put into our bodies, right? But back in the day, it was just understood that milk's good for you. So take it and pass it on. Pass along that information. Well, John knew that Jesus was the ultimate good for those who would read his letters, for those who would read his gospel, for those he would come in contact with. Even much, much later, people like you and me. The life was manifested to him. They saw Jesus. They testified to Jesus. They proclaimed to Jesus. They passed it on. What kind of connection am I trying to make here? Beloved, the purpose for our going up that hill yesterday, one and a half blocks away, was not so that we can grow this church. And if that's the goal, it's a well-intended goal, but it's a little bit misguided. 
Because the purpose is to pass on the Gospel. The purpose is to pass on Jesus. Because our church can't save anybody, but we can be an avenue through whom Jesus Christ does save sinners. The purpose is to pass on the Gospel. People don't need a weight church. People need the Word of Life. People must have Jesus Christ. People must repent of their sins and entrust themselves to Jesus. Just as much as I pray you have and I know I have. So John passed it on. Why? Verse 3, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you also may have fellowship with us. He proclaimed so that others would believe and have fellowship with them. And we are a fellowship of believers, beloved. And the only way people can truly be a part of our fellowship is by believing in Jesus as well. John's fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So is ours. So is ours. That word fellowship is... It's a word that conveys a commonality of life. It, it, it does not mean let's have a meal together. Having a meal together can be part of that sharing of life, but it's not what true fellowship is itself. It's a shared life. I want to read to you something about this from a guy named John Stott. He died about eight years ago, I believe, if I remember correctly. And he was a prominent evangelical voice in the 20th century. And this is what he wrote about this. The historical manifestation of the eternal life was proclaimed, not monopolized. Let me stop there. We don't hide it under a bushel. We've got to let it shine. Okay? We don't monopolize the the eternal word of life. We proclaim the eternal word of life. The revelation, I'm continuing his quote now. The revelation was given to the few for the many. They were to dispense it to the world. Jesus not only manifested himself to the disciples to qualify them as eyewitnesses, but gave them an authoritative commission as apostles to preach the gospel. John insists that he possesses these necessary credentials. Possessing them, he is very bold. Having heard, seen, touched the Lord Jesus, he bears witness to Him. Having received a commission, he proclaims the gospel with authority. For the Christian message is neither a philosophical speculation, nor a tentative suggestion, nor a modest contribution to religious thought, but a dogmatic affirmation by those whose experience and commission qualified them to make it. Let me put that in other words. Beloved, the gospel is not something we tack on to an invitation to church. It's not something we tack on to a call for better national morality or better individual morality for that matter. No. Repent and believe are commands which enable change. Repent and believe. The gospel is not an offer, beloved, to be accepted or rejected, but logic and truth to be embraced and obeyed. John proclaimed Jesus so that others would come to know 
Jesus in a saving way. Authentic fellowship. A common cause. A shared life. Not just a group of people who believe the same things. That could be the Democratic National Convention or the Republican National Convention. But they don't share life. No, it's those who share a common Savior. A common love from Him. A common love for Him. A common love for one another. Now, you might be here this morning and while believing in Jesus, you've forgotten the joy that comes from true fellowship with Christ and true fellowship with other believers. I'm a pastor. And there have been times in my life where I've lost that joy that comes from being among other believers. So I've been there and I've done that. But I've got to repent of it when it happens because... He calls us to the Greek word koinonia, fellowship. And He binds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ to be ambassadors. And He gives us the credentials. He qualifies us. And He doesn't call us apostles, but He does call us His disciples. And He gives us His commission to go and make disciples of all peoples. Not just nations, but peoples. All kinds of peoples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them all I commanded you. One of the things that when we were talking to people about our church yesterday, we wanted to stress is that we believe in the teaching of the Word. Not just getting you fired up to go out and feel better about life. Because as we were talking in the truck... They were taking me home yesterday. One of the things we talked about was sometimes we don't, we're not supposed to feel good when we walk out the door. Sometimes the Word of God ought to make us mourn for our own sin or mourn for someone else's sin and contemplate how we need to be repenting and be going about being obedient and loving one another. I'm off my notes a little bit, but that's okay. The bottom line is, perhaps today you need to be reminded that Jesus came so that all who believe would have fellowship and shared life with Him. Your proclamation of the Gospel, by the way, will be incomplete without that component in your life. There is ultimate joy to be found in Jesus. Look at verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. And let me say something about joy. Joy is not the equivalent of happiness. Joy does not equal happiness. Joy is much more than happiness. Joy is the inner contentment of the heart that can only be found in believers, even in the worst of circumstances, because joy is something that comes from God. As the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There is only one thing that can give true joy, and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means, beloved, that when you are stressed about money, you may remain stressed about money, but Jesus is still God. When you're having troubles at work, and you don't know 
how you're going to make it to the next week. Jesus is still the eternal God, the Word of life. When you're having trouble in your marriage, when you're having trouble with your kids, Jesus is still God. Jesus is still the Word of life. And He has been manifested. Let me continue the quote. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and His great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in Him I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John wants his readers to understand here. Joy, complete, full satisfaction in the fellowship that comes with God. And that's what we must experience. And that's that's what we must proclaim. That's what we must know. Jesus has come. We don't hear Him. We don't see Him. We don't look at Him. We don't touch Him. But we have His Word. Which, by the way, Peter says is even better than that. That's, that's another discussion for another day. But Jesus has come. And that's historical fact. It's logical. It's true. The Word of life has been manifested in the past. And He has present, continuous, ongoing effect. And we all have to deal with that. So my question to you today is are you satisfied? Approach Jesus on His terms. Know that nothing in you merits God's favor. Sometimes that's a hard thing to grasp. But there's nothing in me that merits God's favor. It's His grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for His glory alone. We've got to know that Jesus is the creator of truth. Jesus is the author of truth. In Jesus is the truth. And so we must believe the truth and proclaim the truth. This morning, beloved, I hope that your perception of joy is true joy. I hope your joy is grounded in your fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what we got to have, and that's what we have to take out of here. Are you satisfied? You can be satisfied in Christ today. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that my satisfaction does not come from my circumstances. My joy is not grounded in my quality of life in the world's eyes. My joy is grounded in in my eternal life given to me by You. Father, even on this Mother's Day, we can be down because of life's circumstances. Maybe there's a broken relationship with a mother. Maybe there's uh, the loss of a mother. Maybe there's a mother-child relationship that needs repair. I pray for those here and I pray for those who will ever listen to this. That our joy does not come from these human circumstances, but our joy comes from our fellowship with You because we know that not only can You fix our circumstances, but even if You don't, we have eternal life. And that is so much greater. 
Father, there's not one of us who merits Your favor. There's not one of us who deserves Your grace. We are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We are all those who have transgressed Your will. It's not just that we were born sinners. We actually then do amen that by sinning ourselves. We don't deserve You. And yet You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ. The Word of life was manifested. And He died on a cross. And He rose on the third day. So that death could be defeated. So that sin could be defeated. So that we, repenting and believing in Him, might have the new life that is embodied in His resurrection. Father, I pray for everyone here and everyone listening, whoever listened to this. I pray You'll cause us to find joy in our salvation. And for those who don't have this salvation, I pray You will compel them to come to You in repentance and faith. I pray You will make Awake church, a lighthouse for the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we don't go into the world so that we can build ourselves or build our numbers or build our bottom line. But so that we can build your kingdom. And all of these things will be added unto us if you permit. May we recognize you as God in every aspect of our lives and seek to glorify you in all we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.